Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You've got mail. Drop the the, just Facebook. It's clean. And the way we win is by creating a new democratic, decentralized internet. It is said the internet never forgets. Until now, that is. In a huge ruling, the highest court in Europe ruled that Google and other search operators like it must delete search results if they are requested. They're calling it the right to be forgotten. So we're moving away from centralized data structures to decentralized and distributed data structures. Teachers at this primary school in China know exactly when someone isn't paying attention. These headbands measure each student's level of concentration. The information is then directly sent to the teacher's computer and to parents. You're going to be able to bring things from the physical world into the metaverse. Almost any type of media that can be represented digitally, photos, videos, art, music, movies, books, games, you name it. Now, lots of things that are physical today, like screens, will just be able to be holograms in the future. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am joined, as always, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we are having a series of ongoing conversations with compelling people talking about the major issues of our day with a slant toward, yes, what could go right, given that so many of our questions these days are framed by the what could go wrong and the relentless focus on all the things that are, in fact, going wrong. We live in a complicated world, and that's both a cliche and a truism. But we tend in that complication these days to go toward the negative, to not accentuate the positive, but to emphasize the negative, to privilege our fears and downplay our hopes. And in that context, one of the things that people are increasingly agitated by is both the rise of and proliferation of artificial intelligence and robotics and all the challenge that those pose to identity and privacy and choice, including the nascent fears that we are about to be taken over by the robots. You know, the rise of the machines, the, the Terminator scenarios, and the concerns and the fears and the anxieties arising over the proliferation of cryptocurrencies and the rise of what is called Web 3.0, that decentralized, non-government regulated financial world that these crypto technologies are enabling. I think there are very few people, including people who are really, really steeped in all this in Silicon Valley and in finance land, who do not speak of the rise of artificial intelligence and crypto and Web 3.0. They're all distinct, but they exist in kind of a unified soup, who are not really, really anxious about the Pandora's box, about the can of worms, about the impending, what have we unleashed upon the world? And so it is an absolutely essential time to look at these and look at both their potential, their potential pitfalls, but to remember that there are also some really, really magnificent potentials embedded in these technologies, as there always are. So today we're going to have a conversation with someone who's at the epicenter of these issues. 
Emma, tell us a bit about Aisha Khanna. Aisha Khanna is an artificial intelligence expert. She's the co-founder and CEO of ADDO AI, which is an AI solutions firm and incubator. She's been a strategic advisor on AI, smart cities, and fintech to leading corporations and governments, and also serves on the board of Infocom Media Development Authority, which is a Singapore government agency that develops its world-class technology sector. She's a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Media, Entertainment, and Culture, which is a community of international experts who provide thought leadership on the impact and governance of emerging technologies. She's also the founder of 21C Girls, which is a charity that gives free coding and artificial intelligence classes to girls in Singapore. So, let's talk to Aisha. All right. Aisha, it's great to have this conversation with you today. We're having yet another of our intergalactic, uh, transcontinental, global conversations between me in New York City, Emma in Athens, and you in Singapore. I have to say, I still get a, a sort of weird little free of kind of cool that we can have these conversations simultaneously across multiple zones and multiple geographies. I, I don't know if that's a great thing for the world or a bad thing for the world, but right now I'm just going to treat it as a fun thing for the world. And you've spent a lot of time over the past years thinking about technology and its onward march. And I guess that's just a broad conversation. We can begin with, you know, is it an onward march, right? You do a lot on artificial intelligence. You've thought a lot about Web3. And there's a lot of people who view both of these things, decentralized finance, not necessarily medicated by government, and of course, artificial intelligence with a great deal of not hope and excitement, but fear and trepidation. I have a feeling I know where you come out on that, but maybe ruminate a bit on, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, the pros, the cons. Yes. Now, well, first, first of all, thank you for having me here. It's uh, I'm really pleased to have an opportunity to speak about this uh, with both of you. I think the mistake that we make is we have very sometimes emotional knee-jerk reactions to technology. We don't have a system of thinking or, or an approach because we were never taught it in school. Um, but now where we're entering an age where more and more, it's not like we use machines, but always almost that like we live amongst technology. We live with technology, whether it is not only in our iPhone, but in our digital lives too, uh, with smart city sensors, coding uh, the majority of buildings and roads and infrastructure down the road. We're entering an age where we really need to think, have a way of approaching technology and its pros and cons, exactly as you said. But we've actually never been taught to do that. So you traditionally have had two kinds of people, one who have been naively optimistic and the others who have been depressingly pessimistic. But actually the right point, whether it's artificial intelligence or Web3 or nanotech or biotech, is to right at the beginning when you are trying to build something, for example, we build a lot of AI solutions for our clients globally, we kind of sit down and have a risk framework of everything that can go wrong possibly with something that we're building, unintended consequences, potential consequences and risks. And that approach, those scenario-based approach and an exercise of doing that and red teaming yourself, like having other people question your assumptions, is a very sound and logical way of going about it. And certainly I find the European Commission has exactly this approach. And I'm a big admirer of some of the regulations that they have put forward in the world, including for artificial intelligence. And they think about it, the level of auditing and governance and regulation that will be imposed on a company is directly proportional to the risk associated potentially with putting that AI into the world. So I think that what we need more than the pros and cons is a systematic way of approaching it. 
And that should be embedded in the education for our engineers, certainly for all our entrepreneurs and business and, and high school kids. So Ishe, I wonder if you could give us some examples of this ideal behavior that the European governments are doing along artificial intelligence. I think a lot of people are familiar with Europe sort of leading the way with GDPR and privacy protections. But actually, when you mentioned that around AI in Europe, I have no idea what they're doing. So um, it would be great to hear how they're striking that balance well. So first of all, the European Union, exactly as you mentioned, with global data regulation, uh, GDPR, has been able to set a standard. On February 23rd, 2022, the European Commission adopted its Data Act, which seeks to make data more accessible and to make the data markets more open and fair. This proposal focuses on machine-generated data, or data that is generated when a person interacts with a machine. It can also be sensor-generated data, so for instance, data that tells you about traffic flows in streets or water flows in a sewage system. When it comes to information, we say that if, for instance, if, if, you, you, if you buy a device that will produce data, well, then you have the right to full information about how will data be used. If third party, in agreement with the manufacturer, already have access to this data, you should know also about the purpose, and there are limitations as to what this purpose can be, it cannot be unlimited. And once this purpose is fulfilled, well, data will have to be discarded off. It was kind of a big wild, wild west, uh, you know, when it came to data protection and privacy. And they really put a stake in the ground and they said that you have the right to know uh, if somebody is using your information and how they're using it, you have a right to ask to be forgotten uh, if you were young and wanted your information to be deleted. And what we discovered after that, and a number of six or seven of such tenets of data dignity um, and data privacy and data security that they put out there, the uh, several governments around the world began to adopt this, including elements of that appeared in India and in China, certainly in California, with CCPA being even more stringent in its privacy than the European Union. And now they have come out with a set of guidelines by the European Commission. They haven't been adopted yet, but these are regulations related to artificial intelligence. And they have said that any artificial intelligence can be divided into four layers, a high risk, medium risk, low risk, and no risk. And you know, you will be audited and governed or even allowed to use AI depending on how much you threaten the happiness, the livelihood, and the existence of human beings. So for example, they said facial recognition. We know that facial recognition can inaccurately, because uh, of bias in the data, flag certain people as criminals. And that leads to a terribly demoralizing, humiliating, and sometimes literally incarceration, an unjust, uh, unjust incarceration of people. And they said this is too high risk. This is high risk, and therefore only governments should be allowed to use this. Uh, private corporations should not. If you are being denied health insurance, for example, because the AI is thinking that you are not capable um, of paying your premium or you're too high risk. Well, that's terrible for a person looking for health insurance for themselves or their children or, or looking for college finances or even a mortgage. So that's considered medium risk. And for that, you will be audited more. You will have more accountability. You will have to give more evidence that you are governing your AI in an ethical manner and in a proper a manner where there's less bias and decisions are made in a more or less explainable manner and, and so on and so forth. So if somebody's suggesting a bag I should buy on an e-commerce site, then that's low risk. And so I'm less, I will be audited less. So first of all, it's a risk-based framework, kind of the way we have in financial services. Secondly, there is accountability, both processes and fines up to 6% of your annual revenue associated with it. But because they, it's European Commission guidelines, it's vague right now. But people criticize it for being vague, but I think, hey, it's at least a step in the right direction. Somebody's thinking about it and people putting people first. So this is a question about what is the proper way to create guardrails around something that unfettered probably will have a lot of negative unintended consequences. Although a lot of techno-utopians, of which there are still a considerable number, would say that unfettered will also lead to a lot of unintended positive consequences, and that 
the effect of this multiplicity of rules is will be to stifle multiple ways in which these technologies could evolve, if not stifled otherwise. So I guess this leads to two questions that are totally in your wheelhouse. One is, you, you live in Singapore. Singapore is certainly an example of a of a state system that has taken upon itself in a very technocratic way to attempt to govern a lot of aspects of life for the good of society. Does it work? And is it really a model for the rest of the world, or does it only work in a you know seven million person city state that is essentially um, a lot of people who are have some degree of consensus about the role of of, of these things? And two. How does this compare to whole the whole Web three? You know the decentralized mm. blockchain finance, and maybe you can give us a little primer on that. Whose entire mantra is, if not totally anti-government, then making government irrelevant to to the protocols. That it that it it, it avers that it's creating a self-governing mm. uh, guardrails built-in system, far better than any government or any laws uh, to create both trust in fact, not trust in intent. And and that's the world the way the world should go entirely, which is we should have technology embed the rules and, and not government. I know those are those are two different questions, but they're kind of related and I'm also interested yeah. in the Singapore perspective. Absolutely. And two great questions are that. So let's start with Singapore. What attracted me to Singapore, and I've been in tech uh, since I started working in algorithmic trading systems, implementing quant models, you know, right after college. Um, to my PhD in smart cities infrastructure. I have been following and working in tech for a very long time. And what I find interesting about the way that Singapore rolls out technology is that it's actually very human centric, which means that if you go to some of the new townships, for example, what you see is that a number of the apartments and 80% of Singaporeans live in government subsidized housing. They're actually 30% of them will be prefabricated using advanced manufacturing or 3D printing. Um, the HDB homes, uh, because we are a graying population, will be smart homes. They will be outfitted with sensors and video cameras so that if somebody old falls down, they will immediately be their children or their doctor will be notified. But it's not only about that. They realized a long time ago that elderly people don't just die from falls in their home. They die because they're lonely. They die from accidents. Actually, those are the top two reasons people die of, of old age in Singapore and other countries. So they decided to make all of these government housing multi-generational, not to take the elderly and put them far away in nursing homes. So the point of the matter is that um, the intergenerational housing is a question of urban design. And it's about studying anthropology and about studying sociology. And that's just one example. If you look at uh, transportation and the way that they are building transportation and making it completely car-free and introducing autonomous vehicles and other kinds of uh, more pedestrian-friendly routes, what you see is a very technical state that is actually everything is gearing towards reducing the time spent in bureaucracy and increasing the quality of life. How, and then your second question was, um, you know, how much consensus do you need from people in order to do this? So first of all, a number of these plans are regularly published way in advance. There are four new townships coming up and Urban Authority of Singapore has all of those plans. They are reviewed many, many times um, in the newspaper and discussed with the MPs. And um, there seems to be generally, if there's any issue, people can talk about it. But there's a lot of communication. And you're absolutely right. If you don't have communication, you have a problem. And I'll give you the example of um, Spot, the, the Boston Dynamics dog. It's a robot dog. Same dog was rolled out to monitor social distancing in parks in Singapore. And the same dog was introduced in New York City to help defuse bombs and to go ahead and look for the bombs. In Singapore, you have pictures of it was in the newspaper we ran into the dog people took pictures and then you know that was it in new york there was a huge 
uprising and it was shut down and the police department had to shut it down because they never communicated properly what the dog was supposed to do instead the dog was suspected of being armed and to be accompanying policemen and police women on raids which which would make me uncomfortable as well in the same manner uh, you know if you talk to the singaporean government autonomous vehicles they are all over san francisco everywhere yes they're safe but there are actually not many good global standards yet so the transport minister and department uh, many times have very very selected spaces and they test them again and again and again and coming to that point they prefer to be more conservative than risk taking when it comes to human lives because it's not really worth it for them to have one cyclist or anybody accidentally injured uh, just for the sake of innovation but i like about them is that not only do they place human beings above technology in a smart city environment but that they continue to communicate whatever they're putting out and number 3 that they're quite um risk averse in putting anything at risk whether it is the livelihood of people whether it is their own safety and this means that there's a systematic approach and the last thing guys that i really like about them is that they review their plans all the time you know they're not wedded to their plans if things are not working out they will change so in that sense they're very agile and that comes to the final point that a government that can be agile really maybe it's a city state that can afford to do that and it is very true that for a country just over 5 million people you know densely populated but a city state that it is much easier to do these things with technology here than a large country like india or brazil where there are many 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 more people and many layers you have to go through in a government to execute such a plan and many more points of failure and potential risks that you have to look out for aisha before you go into zachary's yeah second question about web3 so just just really quickly for instance if spot the uh, social distancing awareness dog <laughs> was received poorly by a citizen citizens then the government would have done something differently they would have recalled the dog they would have you know done x y and z um is that true and and you know in that in that case can we then apply that on the united states for instance at the state level or the local level is it possible to do that well you know it really depends so what i find interesting is that that what does it mean that it is not taken well by people does it mean there were uh one person who tweeted about it and was very loud and and vociferously complaining does it mean that many people expressed concern about it and um, did they go to the local mp you know I, my community center is uh, two streets down and i can visit him every week when when he comes here you know there's a method of doing things and yes i believe if there was Uh, concerns that were not addressed by the MPs, people would come and communicate better, and then find another way to do things. The Singapore government does have an ear to the ground; it does pay attention to what people are saying. It is not as easily swayed by a lot of like Twitter mania or or, or the voice of a few loud people. So the question is, it, it they just have a systematic way, and it's rather calm. It's not that reactive, um, and I think that is. Uh, that in itself reassures people quite a bit but when there are enough people who raise a concern it's certainly discussed it's debated in parliament everything is recorded you can see it live it's on facebook it's everywhere now of course young people in every country will rebel and be upset and complain and that's good they should but i think that uh, there is a system of doing things where attention is paid when enough people raise a red flag against it so they would have changed something or they would have communicated it more had it uh, been been come enough people had complained about it and so you were talking about the US yeah i i was just wondering as you were talking i was like okay well, maybe this would be difficult to do like you said in large democracies like india or the US at a federal level but maybe at a state level or a local level regional level why not absolutely you know i'm a big believer in questioning things i really believe it's important and that's why that critical thinking that all of us all three of us were taught in school and our kids are learning or nieces or nephews 
uh, we kind of just throw it out the window. And then we kind of have either emotional or political reactions to everything. But critical thinking is a, is a framework of approaching things. And there has to be, uh, citizens should come together and discuss new technologies as they're being rolled out. There should be a forum for them. And they should be able to discuss it at the municipality level and eventually at the state level. And that is why local governments should be quite strong. And I'm not an expert in geopolitics or politics as much, but I know that in cities, this hyper-local trend is as important also so that people are able to voice their concerns in a, in a hyper-local, you know, cities within cities. At least at the city level, you should have a very engaged uh, citizenry that has a forum without being overwhelmed by millions of people also in it. And then that should ripple up uh, as it's supposed to, but hasn't done as much. And people have felt disengaged in the past in many countries. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Web3 is the newest buzzword taking over the tech and venture capital world. And if you found yourself wondering what it means, you're not alone. Web3 is seen as the third generation of the internet, a decentralized online ecosystem based on the blockchain. Web3 represents kind of a new philosophy about how to realize these technologies in a more distributed and democratic way. Venture capitalists have invested billions into this vision, but some tech experts are unconvinced that Web3 could scale globally. Skeptics like Tesla CEO Elon Musk have called it a marketing buzzword. That was a Wall Street Journal explainer highlighting some of Web3's principles and reasons some are skeptical. Okay, so I've led you down a particular track. Let's go back to Zachary's okay. second question about Web3. <laughs> yes. The wonderful anarchic, you know, you listen to Web3 <laughs> Web three proponents and they're all about, you know, this is the the brave new world where all the, the traditional financial institutions, many of which are embedded with central banks and governments, will fade away like uh, the horse and buggy and colonialism. Well, look, first of all, we know that adoption of digital currency is going up. We know there is a frustration against, um, you know, the fact that some people have made a great deal of money off what is called Web2, which is companies, uh, tech companies like Facebook or Google or YouTube or uh, others. And some people feel they've been disenfranchised and, and left behind. So 
something usually sticks around, has stickiness, if it's solving a problem. I can tell you for sure that the level of bureaucracy and injustice in the emerging markets when it comes to access to capital, loans, um, the ability to get a loan for your business, the ability to be able to get um, a loan to to give it to your child's education. If you have don't have employment, if you don't have transaction history, the under underbanked and unbanked go in the hundreds of millions in Africa, in Asia, Latin America. So this desire to disintermediate banks or these financial institutions that uh, create friction between easy flow of payment, that create uh, that take commissions when people are sending back money from the U.S. to the Philippines. I think that it's a real problem that has to be solved. And the ability to people to do digital work in different economies. And that is really, you know, capital controls in countries. In Pakistan, you can't take out more than $10,000 a day or $100,000 a year USD as an individual. Well, India is, India is not much better. I mean, India is a million, I think, right? A lot better than 100,000, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but not much better, depending on where you are in the economic scale. But the point is that it is because of these things that people want to disintermediate and disrupt financial institutions that they feel have not been customer-centric and have not really paid attention uh, to the customer, to the citizens. Already a wave of fintech, disruptors using AI data has uh, has knocked them off. Uh, they're complacently pedestal and they're becoming, they're realizing that their digital first banks like New Bank is a, from Brazil is the biggest digital bank in the world. And there are 30, 40 million young adults in Mexico, many more in Brazil that it's servicing with their credit cards. And so Web3 is providing yet another solution to that. It's saying that anything that you do that you have now been doing for free on the internet, you should be paid something for it. Um, whether it is, it could be as simple as checking your email, could be searching for something, being on Facebook, uh, because these companies are making money off you. And that idea and anything that you create should you should be able to sell directly to someone without having an intermediary that takes a big chunk out of it. Um, so that is that I feel makes a lot of sense. It gives people the opportunity, democratizes and the opportunity to access marketplaces without having to bear commissions or intermediaries. So it is a problem that has to be solved. Um, for financial services, it makes sense. But if you go to digital currencies that are not backed by uh, gold or by sovereign assets, then it becomes a macroeconomic problem for people. And that's the information asymmetry between uh, citizens and the government. The government understands the macroeconomic implications. A lot of these people who want completely there to be a free-for-all, don't understand the ramifications well. For example, I was reading, I was hearing a podcast by a lawyer, and she said this notion of a DAO, you know, kind of an organization that everybody owns. It's so fabulous, and everybody has equity in it. You can set up, I, I saw somebody set up a golf club and set out a lot of subscriptions, and $20 million or something were raised, and it's like the three of us, and everybody owns the same golf club. And we can all benefit from anybody who pays membership fees. What people miss out on is if you're 100% an owner together, you're also 100% liable as well. And this is the fact that people just, you know, we don't realize it. We just miss out. Yes, you have a lot of cryptocurrencies, but you have to pay taxes on it. It's a pain. And people are just realizing that. And now the Indian government actually announced it. So these are the... This, this information that people don't have is, is very unfair because they're only seeing one part of it, this get-rich-quick kind of scheme. Um, and the fact that if you had no government sounds exciting, but really, uh, where would you go if you had a problem? You know, what would be, there are no pathways for justice. So uh, I just wrote for World Economic Forum a paper on digital justice. 
Now, what happens if you are, are in the metaverse and your avatar is harassed by another avatar? What is your digit, What is your recourse? Who do you go to? Um, where is that information? Do you even know this is not just bullying and going to your school? This is literally how do you go up the chain right to that judge, and who does he hold accountable? And these are processes and institutions that have been set up over time. Can they one day be replicated, simulated in Web three by blockchain? Maybe. I am not certainly philosophically opposed to anything that has good governance embedded in it. I am opposed to jumping to a system that has no institutional legs and cannot protect the poorest people uh, because it has no history of such institutions. So I think that I'm just trying to kind of separate some of the threads here to separate this strong philosophical belief that people have of self-ownership self-empowerment, self-agency, all of which are good, but they don't understand its implications. When you give them real examples, then they are a bit jittery because we haven't set up those institutions yet. And you can't rely on uh, our trust network, right? Everybody in the network is neither equipped nor uh, educated nor specialized enough to reach that discussion. And certainly the, the the network itself cannot provide that security to poor people or, or anybody in trouble, in my opinion. So, Aisha, one way to describe, in another way, you know, what you're saying now, and I, I think you actually have put it this way yourself. I think I'm taking this from you. <laughs> I'm reciting it back to you. But, you know, I, I, I thought I found it very persuasive, which is why I'm repeating it right now. We, when when social media was created, there was the sense of like, well, I don't know, it's it's not going to go that far, blah, 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 blah. We didn't accurately assess the risks. Social media exploded. And then we had to work backward to, you know, establish some of the rules um, to get us into a better place than we are now. And what you're doing with Web3 and some of this other stuff is like, let's talk about the problems now before they arise. But I wonder, you know, are, are you a, a lone wolf in all of this? Because I certainly see, you know, in this in this balance between the techno-optimists and, and the risks of new technology, like with Web3, I see almost no discussion around around the risks and, and what might be the biggest problems um, that arise. What you just spoke about just now was the first time I had heard anyone say anything about that. So, yeah, how do you see yourself in that field? I think it, people don't know. They don't know what they don't know. This is insane. Thing. Like people keep talking about NFTs and then another lawyer had talked about copyright. There's a copyright law. And I know the Singapore government is looking at digital assets. Digital assets are so much more than bored ape. I just got my first NFT. Oh, you did? What was it? I threw MoonPay. Moon okay, there it is. There it is. You know what I'm talking about? This is, this is real. <laughs> MoonPay, which is, I'm, I'm figuring, I did my homework. Okay. MoonPay was like PayPal, but for crypto. <laughs> and I bought, uh, I bought, I bought an ape. Okay. Yeah. Board apes. Yeah. 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 I was going to say I Good bought, uh, I bought Human One last <laughs> night for twenty nine million dollars. Shut up, bro. <laughs> That was artist Beeple talking on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon about creating and selling NFT art for millions of dollars. So people, the, the issue is there are a few bros who are very loud and excited because they made money and crypto and more power to them. You know, they spotted a good trend. And then there's all the rest of us that don't know anything and are kind of cruising and pretending we know or just staying on the fringes. Um, but actually... I think this is the next iteration of the digital economy, uh, I think, or the economy, really. And I think that we should, first of all, admit what we don't know and then start to learn together. And that's why I'm launching, you know, Squad, which is this collective, global collective for women, in which we literally talk about precisely these things. We say, if you're an entertainer or a lawyer or, a or you run a manufacturing factory, what do these things mean for you? in small kind of, you know, tidbits that are easy to understand. You know, instead of saying things like L1 is really like not going to get us to where we want, so we'll do L2. And, and everybody just nods their head. But WTF, like what's L1? What's L2? And somebody could really just explain that, you know, it's the bandwidth is not enough in Ethereum, so L2. And, and I'm happy to explain that uh, in easy to understand ways. 
um, is just to increase the bandwidth in different ways. And what that does is it just people feel comfortable once women especially are shy in asking for help. If they feel comfortable, then they can participate in this new iteration. And that is uh, that is really what we need to do is just talk about the fact that like we're talking right now, I don't know the answer. You don't know the answer. Let's talk about it. That's what smart and interesting people do. So I think that it's just not enough discourse. People are shy because they feel they missed out on something. And there's a lot of loud noises. But um, I hope my collective, our biggest question, you know, we're going to ask all these questions, um, hopefully. So you talked about not just the, the, the this new endeavor, but you've done a lot of work on particularly bringing women into technology, young girls. I'm always struck, and I've had this argument with a lot of people, you know, as a parent of two kids who are now less kids and more young adults, the, the amount of sort of reactive fear that people in tech land have when they start raising their own children. I mean, I've heard people who've made, you know, oodles of money on social media or various forms of it going, oh, no, no, I, I don't let my kids have a smartphone. I don't let my kids go on social media. I mean, it's almost as if they feel like, uh, you know, they've been drug dealers who won't let their children buy their own product, which is probably a good thing for a drug dealer. But it raises the question of if you're, if you spent your entire life building out these technologies, presumably at one point, having drunk your own Kool-Aid, believing that these were inherently for the betterment of mankind. And you know what the, the Valley mantra of, you know, get rich and make the world a better place so do you still share some of the latent optimism of, look, these tools are potent, they're neutral, you know, hammer can kill someone and hammer can build a house and the tool is neutral, the use of it is all that matters. You know, do you, do you wrestle with this in raising your own kids? Do you wrestle with this in teaching technology? Like, I, I mean, I know from your, your, where your sentiments are that you are fundamentally about learning and balance and, and understanding. But it is an odd thing. It's an unusual thing in this particular world. The amount of people who are almost like recanting their own mantras when it comes to the next generation. Yeah, honestly, I don't get it. It's like they know what they put in the the soup, the goulash, you know, and they, they don't want their own kids to have it. We, for example, we do know that a lot of these algorithms are meant to be addictive. And I can understand uh, that they're, they're hesitant in having their own kids in there, but they do a disservice to the rest of us, right? So their kids are going to inherit hundreds of millions of dollars or, uh, and, and so it's okay for them not to learn something that is going to be fundamental to them building an important and interesting and meaningful career uh, globally. But, but for the rest of us, our kids should know, right? They should know the basics of technology for three reasons. Number one, because to build anything interesting that solves problems, you need these little assistants that I call AI, or they can be uh, chemicals, they can be nanomaterials. We should consider them our little assistants, and they will help us be more competitive and move faster. Secondly, as citizens who are increasingly in a world where, which is pervaded by technology, we need our children to be aware of what these technologies are doing, kind of have an intuitive understanding and make decisions on when to switch on and switch off uh, or what to demand of their governments uh, so that they are live a life of agency and are able to make decisions without being manipulated by, by these forces or by the companies that own them. Um, and then finally, I think it's about teaching our children a proactive philosophical relationship with technology. You can have a, this is this fear that my, if I give them, a, you know, a, an iPad, they will just start watching YouTube videos or, or TikTok. And that's how they'll be passively trapped by the iPad. Whereas we perfectly know the iPad has Adobe on it. There, there's lots of positive, proactive things that they can do on it. They should look at any piece of technology, whether it's a 3D printer or a laptop or an iPhone, iPad, uh, just like you would kind of look at a piece of paper and a pencil. You don't expect the pencil to start like, you know, drawing things out for you. Pick it up and you start doodling. And 
that comes only through exposure and by nudging through education so that they can feel that. And that's kind of what we try to do in our courses for girls and kids in Singapore is to nudge them towards thinking that you are empowered by this and you have to have critical decision-making on whether this is good or bad for society. And even the collective I was talking about for women, it's all about you, the individual. How can you use this for your career, your kids, your society? Um, Whereas a lot of the discussion is not about the individual. It's really about trends or analytics or the business or the stock market. And that's where I think um, that's where it's a big disservice. If you don't expose people to this new way, new relationship with technology, then you're really condemning them to a lifetime of passively, passively just living listlessly as technologies take over more and more of our tasks and our life around us. I also love your phrase of calling them little assistants, right? Because it, yeah. <laughs> it no, but it's also important, you know, a yeah. lot of people view these things as both the opposite of little and the opposite of assistance. You know, they kind of view them as massive monsters and that it's going to get out of control and we're going to be living in some dystopian world where the robots are ruling our lives, you know, whether it's the Terminator or Asimov's iRobot, you know, all, all the fears that have been around or H.G. Wells. I mean, ever since people started inventing machines, there's been some latent fear that the machines are eventually going to take over and dominate us and rule us. And by calling them little assistants, you know, at least for the moment, provisionally, you're also making it clear that, that the power dynamic remains uh, unfavorable for AI and technology. Like, we're, we're still writing the rules. And until, until it's clear, yes, there's a lot of... Uh, AI software that writes its own rules, right? But it writes them within the parameters that have already been defined. It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't just go off on its own <laughs> and start writing rules. I totally agree with you, which is, and you know, I learned this from the Japanese. When I went to Japan um, and I met this guy who creates these robots, he calls them love arts because he said, when you talk about machines, you only talk about big hulking robots in factories or those that, you know, Superman has to fight against. But why don't we just talk about little cute robots that bring you joy? And he said all the robots in Japan are little and cute and they're not threatening. <laughs> and they, and I thought that was so smart. I was, and it was a cute little thing. And, you know, and, and I think that that is really the key. And, you know, that in the oldest Buddhist mosque, uh, Buddhist uh, monastery near Tokyo, there is a robot Buddhist monk that gives everything, right? And so, and then everybody's like, oh my God, this is so weird. Look what's happening. And then they met the old man, the old monk who ran the monastery. And I loved how he spoke. You know, he said, first of all, this is not a replacement for me. Um, this is a good way. We are aging. We are dying. There are fewer of us monks. This is a good way for us to communicate to the young generation in a way they find interesting. But because he was so calm and so clear that it was their sermons, that this was a medium for them to communicate, you know, he immediately just took that that drama down three notches and um and made it something that was practical and useful and interesting and i thought this you know 90 something year old monk understood better what to use ai and robots for for spiritual awakening or or support of these people than a lot of what we see in this dystopian utopian world where we're very reactionary very dramatic um, and kind of always at each other's throats with knives. Yeah, and actually when you see some of these robots in action, for instance, there's one that um, we have an article on the Progress Network about Robin the Robot, mm. which goes to uh, children who are patients in hospitals and it talks to them, it remembers who they are, it remembers their conversations. And it's incredible when you when you watch the videos, the kids like love it, the kids are hugging it, it's like a friend. And to be honest, when I first read the pitch for it, I was like... <laughs> That sounds like kind of creepy, like sending this robot into these poor children's lives who are sick in the hospital. But but actually, it seems to have had a wonderful effect on them. Just like Clifford the Big Red Dog. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the, the key question is it can do good. And now we have to govern the owner of this Robin. Right now, 
the owner, the company that creates it has to have has to adhere and comply with a set of governance regulations or rules in which if it is audited or at risk of being audited to make sure that it is not manipulating the children to buy I don't know, something right. online that it is not recording them and can be used later when they've become better and sell that information to an insurance company. So when you have governance, then you can, you know, take, you know, you can enjoy the benefits of these machines. But when you don't have governance, don't have controls, that's when it then it then it becomes a problem. I think one of the challenges of governance and government regulation is that, and you see this a lot in the EU, you see it increasingly in the United States, I think you actually see it less in a place like Singapore, is a high level of antagonism from the regulators toward that which they're regulating. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, an a priori position of these things are essentially bad, we can't completely squelch them, but we're going to do our best to box them in. And that's certainly true about Web3, and certainly true about crypto, in terms of the attitude of regulators. And it's interesting, when you look at a lot of initial regulatory efforts in the 20th century, most regulators recognized, or regulatory frameworks recognized that whatever they were regulating, you know, safe food, clean water, they weren't antagonistic toward food and water, right? They They were trying to make sure it was constructive. And I think, you know, this is important. I think a lot of the regulatory culture loses that when it comes to technology. Like they really are inherently antagonistic. They are as antagonistic as like tech bro culture is ridiculously, you know, naively utopian. And it's like the two of them ping pong off of each other in a really unhealthy way when when it comes to what are we going to construct that is most favorable toward a balanced operating environment for all of us. Yeah, I think that's very unfortunate and true. And really, you know, what it speaks to is that you have to have people who are knowledgeable, um, you know, in the boardroom or at the strategic level involved in all these policy and regulatory authorities. You know, usually there are a lot of lawyers and economists and finance people. And then you get some scientist that you think is kind of geeky and weird and you call him or her for a few minutes, but you don't really let them sit in. You don't really like, you know, grapple with the situation because on the one hand there is ignorance and then there's a fear and shame of ignorance and that doesn't help. Right. And, And of course Silicon Valley and all haven't helped because there's this tech elitism uh, where you don't just explain things in like simple logical ways, and that is also very un- unfair, because people do deserve to know, and you you should explain it to them. When uh, we go in, when I go into boards or anything like that to advise our clients, I make sure that we put it in a way that's understandable to them. Certainly, they do it for me when they explain the business to me. So this kind of mutual respect and openness and willingness to explain to each other will, you know, put people's guards down and make, allow them to be vulnerable enough to say, you know what, I don't understand that. Let's, can you explain it to me and have more of a conversation? Um, and I think that then it can be more collaborative. Now, the other thing is traditionally people from the social sciences and the engineering have had a communication problem beyond just, you know, there's shackles up against each other. And we need to have this communication training in schools and executive programs uh, and and also in in uh, colleges, the number one reason why AI projects fail is not because of the AI. It's always because of human communication. Ninety nine point nine percent. Every techie knows this in the world. So if we improve that, uh, we will have much better governance and regulations. I love how much you're emphasizing to the humility and vulnerability and and okayness with saying like I don't get it. Yeah. You know, actually, for me, until recently, with a lot of these things, I was like, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> and what really did it for me was this thing that you put out actually about BFF, yes. um, which was this, you know, initiative to um, welcome women into the crypto Web three world. They had a hour, two hour long seminar that really broke things down simply. And the fact of the matter is, when you have good communication. People get it. it. You don't need to understand like every single little bit about how the tech works to be part of the conversation. 
so I hope that we see more and more of that, of, of pulling people into the conversation because they can understand. Emma, are you now a card-carrying crypto member? Well, going going back to this conversation about emerging markets, not, a, not that Greece is exactly an emerging market, but I've been blocked for months now for buying crypto mm. in Greece because of the verification process and also because of what's available in Greece. So I'm actually waiting to go back to the United States to buy crypto, which is weird. I feel like that should not be the case. I think you should bring revive uh do a crypto drachma as your your summer project <laughs> yeah that would not go well <laughs> the government of kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026 the ministry of health in uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever it's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Technocracy advocates argue the democratic system is unprofessional, overly politicized, corrupt, and ineffective. A society managed by scientists and engineers would be more rational and productive. Singaporeans handed rule of their society to a one-party technocracy, and it's an economic powerhouse with the second busiest port and the third highest per capita income in the world. So, Aisha, as we wrap this up, I guess as a really open-ended one, um, I know both you and, and others and have thought about the contrast of sort of how Asian states... Singapore, of course, uh, I guess for a little while, Hong Kong, but not so much anymore. Taiwan, Japan, South Korea have been uh, more holistically integrating policy and technology, right? And we talked about that in Singapore. The, the pushback remains, though, from an American perspective. And it's and it's a pushback a little bit against the EU as, as well. I mean, if you think about the EU as maybe occupying a middle ground in these two polls, is, is the fear of ceding too much control to technocrats. And, and we've talked about all the challenges and all the issues, uh, particularly for American technocrats who can be remarkably unempathetic, don't get the real warp and woof of life. You know, I'm not in for one moment suggesting that I think Silicon Valley and technology companies have in any way stepped up and acted responsibly in the sense of engaging with the social consequences of, of what they've wrought. In fact, I think they've been abjectly missing in action when it comes mm -hmm. to that. But there is a legitimate discomfort of, should we really be saying, should the state, this kind of paternalistic, at least that's the view, right? That there's the paternalistic Asian state saying, we know best what's good for us. Is that your experience actually, you know, you've been in multiple, you've been in Europe, you've been in the United States, you've been yeah. uh, in Asia. Is that your experience of it? Is there a legitimacy to that fear? I mean, that's certainly said about it. I haven't felt it that much either in Singapore because I feel like, citizens who are self-aware and not every citizen is right even in asia who take an interest in such things there's a lot of discussion and debate and policy papers that are always published and think tanks that talk about it um and then certainly when you see in other countries you know asia is very big a lot of the countries you spoke about are east asia but then you look at uh, you know southeast asia indonesia vietnam the Philippines, and then of course you look at South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, and you see young people, right? So Singapore, Korea, Japan, we're all aging, but then you see the other people in Pakistan, the average age is 22 years old. You can imagine the optimism they carry, and they have more, their mobile phones, some of them are 
carry two mobile phones. This is their connectivity to the world. They are much more interested when the government says they're going to do things like um, have a national ID system so that they can do KYC, exactly the problem that you were talking about in Greece, or that they want to encourage uh, digital brokerage, digital banks. They are much more interested in this. So instead of being paternalistic, the government is, there's a huge positive response uh, to such initiatives of greater use of technology, almost to the fact that I think because they're young, they don't think about the downside. So the government needs to actually hold them back. So, you know, Asia is very varied. Um, it really depends on how mature the economy is. The more mature it is, the more people are educated and, and hesitate about technology, think about uh, what the government is bringing in. But I found in Singapore, over the years, they have made, they're pivoting the education system to bring more and more people into Industry 4.0 so they don't feel left behind. Um, and that, that, may seem patronizing. I'll give you an example. You tell me if it's patronizing or not. I met this man. He said he was an engineer. He used to work on planes uh, at one of the Singapore airline aviation companies. And he was, uh, it turned out he was like 63 or 64. And he said that he was released from his job because of AI and automation. And, you know, the day he was released, he knew it was last day, the Singapore government career office came. And they came and all these people who were in their 50s and 60s, they said, you know what? You could have a paid internship at this 3D manufacturing fabrication German company. We will pay it. This company will teach you the basics so that if you want it and you did a good job, they could employ you. You'll probably make less money than before because it would be a junior level job. But at least it won't be an abrupt cessation of your job. And this gentleman, anyway, was great. He's going to be featured in my book also. I was just charmed by his enthusiasm and about everything that he was learning. But he was very balanced. He said, I'm going to earn less, but I'm glad they came. I'm going to keep busy. I don't think I'm going to retire for a long time. So this is the government coming in, doing a couple of things, right? It's encouraging AI automation for the company that needs it, so that company does well. But it's taking care of the citizens so that they don't fall through. It's literally subsidizing other companies that are German companies to hire its own aging citizens so that they can learn something. And if they're useful, can be useful to the company. So there's a lot happening here that you would consider, uh, you know, in some way patronizing, right? They're, they're saying these are important technologies. We know that there's going to be this frictional and structural unemployment. We're going to try to, to solve this problem. But I thought that this was a good way of dealing with it, basically, of, of saying these are the technologies we believe are going to be necessary. We're going to include these companies, let them come, increase, but we're going to take care of our citizens to, to mitigate the risks that come. So uh, whereas if I look at Pakistan, and I'm from Pakistan originally, so I have a lot of familiarity, there it's just this big enthusiasm. Digital banks are going to come. I'm sure some people will lose their jobs, but Government, you know, it has too many problems to solve in a poor country. It's not thinking about that right now. And uh, and they think the economy will do well enough for these people to find other jobs. So there, there are many ways of looking at it. One is more free market. One is a bit more structured and organized. Well, Aisha, I love your, your balance and your perspective, both global and, and personal, and your constructive, if there's an issue, <laughs> how do we solve it? If there's a... Uh, an absence, how do we create a presence? And uh, you're doing wonderful work and it'll be exciting to see where all that goes. And thanks for being part of the Progress Network. Thank you so much to both of you. It was so much fun to talk to you. Thank you, Aisha, likewise. So one thing that, okay, we said a, f a fair number of things that we love about what Aisha said, but another thing that I loved in particular that she talked a little bit explicitly about is also this balance between ages, right? Because you could go into some of these things about the problems of the government in the United States where you have very old politicians making decisions about technology. They're like clearly not up on what is happening. And the counter, you know, 
to that would say, let's flood the government with, with 22 year olds. But of course, that's not gonna end up in a great place either. And Aisha points out like, no, like what we need here is a balance. We need the fresh faced optimism of the 22 year old in Pakistan. And we need the wisdom of maybe, you know, a paternalistic figure in his 70s. And because like this, this diversity of age discussion doesn't occur a lot, I just wanted to highlight that. What do you think? Yeah, and it was, I mean, that was so striking. I think uh, the, the hearing in Congress where some of the tech leaders, including Zuckerberg, were being grilled by senators, many of whom clearly didn't basically understand email, let alone you know, <laughs> chat and technology and privacy. Not that there aren't a lot of questions that those people should be asked, but it was, it was, it, it wasn't just that they were talking past each other, it's that the knowledge base about these things was so disconnected. And what's great is that so much of Aisha's work, which is not really evident in a US context, is is educating people, you know, particularly women and girls who have been typically not part of the tech entrepreneurial culture of the past 40 years, right? That's been a huge, huge failing slash imbalance in, in technology land. Uh, the absence of women. I mean, it's been a failing in lots of society, but it's been really notable in a left-leaning, liberal-ish world that you would think would be more balanced in that respect that hasn't been. And she's been doing amazing work in integrating more, you know, gender parity or at least gender presence into into this world. And I was also struck by a kind of lack of cynicism that you know, you and I, Emma, are are constantly coming up against. We're coming. I come against it. Little, you know, demons in the night, cynicism, goblins, haunting me, uh, which I find really bizarre. Just like any middle of the night anxiety. But it's very hard to live in an American and or you know Greek European context and not just give into the yeah yeah right. And it's great that you know even within a progress network that is trying to support all these you have voices like Aisha who is so there regardless. Yeah, I mean I really appreciated the way that she framed actually like people are shy to talk about, you know, web three and technology because like the sort of gremlin way to phrase that, which I think is also valid, is to say like, you know, one reason why gender parity and gender presence hasn't been in in the web3 world is because like when you go on to those discord servers like people are mean man you know they're not there to be like i'm here to educate you and welcome and like we're gonna do this and you could look at that and say like in a gremlin type fashion like screw this like this is just another you know place where things are unequal but aisha you know flips that she's like we're gonna solve this we're gonna create education, we're going to create initiatives, like let's let's do it, you know, without focusing on the gremlins. So on that note, don't focus on the gremlins, let's do it. All hail Aisha, let's solve our problems and, and not assume that, you know, the younger generation, however young that young is, is like incapable or the object of terrible things that have been created, that they are subjects and, you know, it's their world, it's your world, it's our world. Let's figure out how to live in it. Thank you again, Emma, for having these conversations. And we will keep having them. Thank you, Zachary. If you want to find out more information about The Progress Network and what could go right, please visit our website at theprogressnetwork.org. And if you want something other than gloom and doom when you open your email in the morning, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's a roundup of progress news from around the world. And that's at theprogressnetwork.org slash newsletter. And please, if you like the show, if you could tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would help us out a ton. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and Emma Barber Lucas. The show is produced by Andrew Stephen and edited by Jordan Aaron, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Puglomerate. Thank you so much for listening.